All right. Hello, everybody. I'm your host, Keon. Welcome to the One Hit Wonder podcast. One Hit Wonder because we're all going to ace this assignment and then we're never going to do another podcast again. Today, we're going to be talking about the 10 essential services of public health, specifically in our case, the 10th service, which is incorporating research into new and innovative approaches to public health. For us, it'll be tailored specifically to indigenous communities. Uh, I'll be introducing Miriam. Say hi, Miriam. Hi. Uh, Mariam, can you tell us a little bit about your, uh, what you decided to do your research on? Oh, so I decided to do my research on decolonizing HCV and substance abuse in the indigenous population. So my new insight here is public health recognizing colonization mm-hmm. as a new determinant of health. Because we all know determinants of health are um, your social class, income, education, things like that. But we want to right. incorporate colonization as a determinant. So the study that I looked at provided three new insights. So the first one is public health should recognize colonization. Mm-hmm. Second, they should create and maintain trust within your, the provider and the patient. So basically, the indigenous people should feel like they trust their healthcare providers. And the third one should be identifying and building circles of care. Now, I know this doesn't really sound very... Um, I know you might not understand this immediately, but don't worry, I'll explain it. And then... So... One question I have for you there is uh, when you say colonization, obviously, we can pretty much gather that you mean that, you know, we uh, Europeans came here, they colonized, they took a lot of the culture. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, and I don't mean this in a necessarily bad way, mm-hmm. eventually the Europeans who did come, their medicine is pretty good. I mean, we have one of the best healthcare systems in the world, yes. right? So it's kind of unfortunate that... Uh, our medicine can't benefit them. So yeah. would you say that we're, this approach doesn't want to use any of what Western medicine, or is it like a mix? Okay, so that's a really good question, and many people have that concern. So we're not saying Western medicine is bad for indigenous population. Mm-hmm. We're just saying that it depends on the individual, and it, it depends on their preference. So what we want to incorporate is the option to have culturally tailored culturally tailored interventions for them. For instance, the one I found and I'm really focusing on was published in the International International Indigenous Policy Journal. Okay. And so what they did was they looked they recruited people who identify as substance abusers and they created an intervention where they come for weekly meetings, they talk to elders, they do sm- they do sweat lodges, they do drumming and sharing circles. And what they found was the people felt they were hurt in those situations. And it actually caused a 55% improvement in their symptoms and how they deal with their substance abuse disorders. All right. So that's actually really interesting. Yeah, I've done a little bit of reading myself in the past on that. And I always found things like sweat lodges and their traditional medicines were an interesting uh, approach. Now, speaking about traditional uh, aspects of indigenous life, Tanvir, can you introduce your topic to us? Yeah, so I really focus my uh, topic of discussion around integrating traditional and holistic treatment to tackle the problem of addiction within indigenous communities. And so the Canadian health system, we already know that it's been fostering a culture of discrimination. And around that, we need to understand that culture-based practices around treating addiction should be implemented in indigenous communities, especially in those for those individuals that are very specific and very tailored to those practices. So an example of this that I found was the Leading Thunderbird Lodge, which is 
located in Saskatchewan, which provides a 16-week culturally-based treatment procedure for those individuals that are um, uh, that are dealing with problems such as addiction, um, specifically within the ages of 12 to 17. Um, and now they focus on a very holistic treatment that looks at personal development in specific areas such as spiritual, physical, and mental. So it not only treats the addiction, but it also treats the individual. And it really promotes equality assurance and it promotes this entire culture of understanding where indigenous communities come from and how important culturally based practices are for them. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I find that uh, there's a very serious issue, and I'm not sure if everyone knows, but I think it's very common about how indigenous folks, they are very disconnected with their culture, with their right. languages, with their practices. And I think that incorporating things like that, it's sort of like rehab, but for the soul, something right. like that, right? right? So would you say that uh, your approach is also really similar to a decolonization? I would say that it is uh, sort of in in many ways similar to decolonization, but it mm-hmm. also sort of looks at um, integrating a holistic treatment as well as normal westernized medicine practices. So it doesn't really look at only decolonization, but it also looks at the exa- or the importance of having Western medicine um, integrated with different practices that look at spiritual and physical healing, not only just uh, mental and physical. So just real quick to recap, uh, yours was specifically taking a cultural approach to dealing with addiction and things right. like that. Yeah. Maybe was that like looking at it like, oh, well, you know, they're already upset and sad and, you know, maybe depressed, right. making them more vulnerable for addiction because of this cultural divide? Yeah. So basically these cultural practices use healing as a method because it really looks at uh, things such as residential school abuse and colonization, which sort of helps with restoring the sense of belonging, restoring the sense of wisdom of traditional teachings. So, yeah. Cool. So on that topic of addiction and whatnot, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, Uh, research? Tobacco use? Yeah, tobacco use. Uh, Well, I mean, I think it's a pretty uh, common fact uh, that's uh, known widely that, you know, um, tobacco use is disproportionately high um, Mm -hmm. among indigenous youth, whereas um, non-indigenous youth, it's not as high. And this seems to be uh, a problem that many researchers are focusing on. And what they sort of came up with uh, is basically the same thing as uh, Tanvir mentioned, that cultural interventions, culturally relevant interventions are a lot more effective in uh, reducing, um, in this case, tobacco use and obviously in her case, um, substance use rates. Uh Um, So would you say that this is in any way related to, uh, I I'm personally not sure if this is just a stereotype, but I have heard that they also do sell a lot of tobacco in indigenous communities, not just to each other, but in general. It's something that is a bit of an industry there. Right. Um, Well, tobacco use is, there is a cultural use for it, obviously. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's Mm -hmm. a traditional use for it, and there's a non-traditional use for it. So when uh, people refer to um, non-traditional use, it's most often um, talking about, you know, recreational smoking or, you know, cigarettes that we now uh, know of and sell in convenience stores. Um, this seems to be a kind of uh, a, dis- uh, a dichotomy because not many people can reconcile, um, well, if you're telling me to stop smoking or if you're telling me to, you know, give up tobacco, that means I also have to give up my way of life uh, or at least an aspect uh, of, of my culture. And um, there are plenty of interventions such as, um, you know, there's the BC um, Aboriginal Tobacco uh, Strategy. Uh, they have one, they incorporate one sort of program where they basically um, hold sessions that 
tackle the same issue that just because um, uh, you are indigenous uh, doesn't mean that you have to give up your way of life. Uh, it basically talks about, um, you know, stopping uh, or at least reducing your um, recreational smoking while at the same time uh, maintaining uh, your, your way of life. Well, I think something that's interesting about that is that if you look in the World War One and World War Two era, right, right. Uh, young men who were shipped off, they often smoked a lot of tobacco because A, the nicotine helped keep them awake and it Absolutely. became a really big culture, especially yeah. in North America, to start smoking because their mentality was, well, I'm going to die anyways. This is something that at the very least in the cool down, in the off right. times, the keeps me calm. But now we as, uh, as a non-indigenous uh, Society, and I'm not saying that as in we're separate, but like, you know, uh, people who aren't indigenous, they've spent the past probably 60 years moving away from that. Do you think that, you know, the cultural offset, right? and by cultural offset, I mean the damage that those behaviors may cause, right. like ways the damage it might cause to uh, remove that cultural aspect, like we see with uh, well, Tanvir and Miriam's topics? Right. Well, I mean, um, going along with that, you also see why... Uh, decolonization is uh, why there's such a big movement to include decolonization as a determinant because while that practice was in play and it was mm -hmm. so common back then, um, it still sort of lingered on and the effects are still being seen today. So understanding where all these problems came from is a huge and, it's a, and probably imperative way, imperative a method to um, tackle uh, issues such as substance use and uh, um, tobacco use. Cool, so just you know, weighing the benefits and the costs. Uh, now, talking about uh, distribution and things that indigenous people provide, uh, you had a topic on what we're failing to provide to them, right, Hannah? Yep. Go ahead. So I focused on nutrition among indigenous communities and kind of the food insecurity and the challenges they face to get produce that you and I, for example, can so easily ac uh, access. Mm -hmm. And I also focus on food sustainability. So a lot of indigenous communities live in isolated pockets. So and food and food insecurity is all about a lack of fresh produce. Do you think that um, it should be you know on us, the people who aren't necessarily isolated socially and uh, economically, to provide them with those produces? Like what I mean is, if we were to provide them with fresh produce, it would cost us a lot of money. Right, and we'd have to pay that out of our tax. We, our taxpayers would have to pay for that burden. Do you think that is something that we should have to pay? Like we should be obligated to pay for, it? or is that something that we're just gonna have to figure out a different solution to deal with? Um. Yeah, I think that we should be able to send them fresh produce, but also a huge thing like we've been talking about um, cultural aspects, just mm -hmm. even giving them or educating them on how to gr continue growing their own um, produce. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, also, it's more so growing their own produce isn't as much as the issue as um, finding the best way to... Finding the best way to keep them uh, I don't know, nourished? No, not nourished, guys. Like, how to keep the food, like, fresh. Oh, keep it, keep the food, yeah, just keeping, food keeping food it fresh for longer. Yeah. Preserving it. Preserving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, sorry, guys. No um, problem. Yeah, so more so, the bigger issue is how to preserve their food and how to, um, just so that they could use it in the winter months. Right, and that must be a really big issue in those communities, because, you know, winter up north, well, we know what it's like down here, right? Yeah, exactly. So, 
Um, I looked at a bunch of different interventions to tackle those issues, and Mm -hmm. a couple of them touched on community gardens, freezers, and hunting groups, so that way they're able to access food and then also preserve the food. Um, Community gardens being somewhere where they could grow the crop, and then community freezers and fridges and pantries is an intervention that they did, um, just so they have somewhere to keep all the food that they make. And more interventions they had was food skills building classes, where basically they'd be able to um, where they'd be able to sit one on one with a dietitian just so that they kind of like improve their knowledge on eating healthy and cooking um, foods with their produce. Well, that sounds good. Anyways, this has been the first and final episode of the One Hit Wonder Show. Uh, I'm Keon, and we're signing off. Have a nice day. Ciao.